The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So who of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, pre-chorus. And we're alive. It's time. Hello everyone. Today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. The world is an interesting and confusing place, and tonight is a surprise cheese night. With, with a corn on the cob shirt yes. and a groovy dog shirt. A gro- yeah, it's, uh, you know, and sometimes it's just going to be one of those days. Um, Unfortunately, it feels like we're having more of those days <laughs> than, than not. But it is better than the full-blown pandemic. So there is some improvement. I'm going to focus on the positives. So, do you have the monologue today? Okay, I, I could do the monologue. All right. I think one of the major issues in my life has been the accumulation of stuff and the desperate desire to remove it from my space. Clutter is my enemy, and it is an enemy I feel that the entire world can unify against. I have Marie Kondoed my way through a corner of our apartment, and there is a lot of things that do not bring me joy, especially when I look at the news headlines. However, there are many other things that do bring me joy, and I actually discovered something that I didn't know I had. So my grandma passed away, the audience might not know this, over um, Christmas time, and I realized that I have an apron that she gave me that was one of her fancy aprons, and I was really delighted to find it. That is excellent. And what, um, uh, so what percentage when you, when you Marie Kondo your way through a section, (laughs) what percentage of the material in the section stays and goes? It depends on the section. So there, I'll say the kitchen, a lot of it stays because I am very much a, I don't know. I don't know how to say this. I like other than just I'm a bit of a stickler for only use having things that I actually use around. So the kitchen is pretty okay. There's a few too many glasses and plates. But now see if Andrew went through there, he'd be like, we need two spoons, two bowls, (laughs) a fork we can share. And so it depends on who's Marie Kondo doing what section. So the kitchen's fine. My closet. Oh, a lot of things bring me joy, but are they useful? I don't know. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, uh, see, when I, I don't Marie Kondo things, because, you know, I'm a wittis, and that means I never clean anything under any circumstances. <laughs> um, it's a family trait. Um, and, um, and so we just accumulate stuff until we are, uh, I think the technical term for us is hoarders. Uh, and eventually we just don't fit in the place anymore. And it becomes, you know, a fire trap. And uh, and we kind of huddle in a corner where all the stuff kind of attacks us. Um, 
So basically, it becomes the Hogwarts library. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like well, and it and it is alive, you know, and and it. Um, uh, so yeah, um, I'm always fascinated by people who can clean uh, uh, stuff and make stuff go away because it um, it's uh, uh, it's a it's just like a it's like saying you can you know paint the Sistine Chapel to me. Oh, and see, and, and the the problem is though I, there are certain things that I do not like books. I, I have a very hard time getting rid of books and there is a constant stream of them coming in through the door because I, I just like the feel of paper and I like the margins and just, I, I prefer to read that way. So um, to everybody, first of all, we're, the audience is demanding a poll. But secondly, um, uh, to, to those in the audience who were suggesting that I could take stuff to goodwill, they are correct, but missing the point because if I were capable of taking of separating the stuff I want to keep from the stuff that I don't and taking it to goodwill, I could, you know, get rid of it by any other means. I could set it on fire. I could <laughs> throw it out. I could, you know, uh, uh, dissolve it in acid. Um, the point is, um, uh, I am characterologically incapable of getting rid of stuff. Uh, and that, and so telling me different ways that people who are <laughs> capable of getting rid of stuff actually manage to do it is really a little bit like telling me uh, all the wonderful ways to cook with nuts. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, all of which is a Marie Kondo like way of saying that we are not allowed to have fun anymore, even and especially when we are preparing to move. Um, nor are we allowed to have a guest. Uh, so it's just going to be one of those days where we take questions and shoot the shit. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and I just want to say to all of you who are saying you're a keeper in the in the poll, I promise you, you're mostly amateurs. <laughs> I, just, I just promise. Um, now, I, I have a question, though. In terms of keeping things, is there anything that you're more of like a collector? Because I have a very good family friend, and she has described herself as a serial collector. Oh, Paul Rosenzweig is here. Oh, um, he does he want to come in? He does. He's, he's our emergency guest. Um, Yay! Invite so, on screen. So, um, uh, look, there are some things that I can be said to collect. Small artillery, for example. <laughs> um, in, you know, various miniature weapons. Um, but um, uh, I can't say this accounts for a substantial... Volume. Hey. Oh, Paul, uh, you're you're echoing. Um, do you have headphones? All right, I'm just going to mute you temporarily. I, I can't I, say it accounts for a substantial volume of the clutter, which okay. is um, really just stuff that other people would clean up. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> not sure how to how to state it more 
<laughs> more, more trivial. Like, honestly, it's, you know, as other people spend time cleaning, I spend my time writing and doing in lieu of fun and podcasting a, and things like that. It's a much more enjoyable way to spend your time, uh, is for sure. Assuming you don't mind living in a... Uh, the, in wreckage. Hello, Paul. Hello. How are you? Am I am I echoing still or not? You are not still echoing. You are. Is life uh, good or what? Life is great, and you are wearing a sloth shirt. I am indeed. That's so we have I'm in Costa Rica. Excellent. You, and on in lieu of fun. So you've got we've got three. I'm the only one with vegetable shirt <laughs> or grain shirt. Yeah, I can't see. What's the other? What are you oh, wearing? Oh, sorry. It is a groovy dog shirt ah dogs and uh and corn and sloths and there we go <laughs> how are you paul rosenzweig i am good i am pretty darn good these days um let's see i'm in costa rica so it's much warmer here than it is wherever you are it snowed um, today yeah <laughs> like slushed <laughs> yeah, well there you go see that's that would be my point yes um and uh, what else is new and exciting? Um, have you seen a sloth in real life recently? Define recently. I have seen sloths in, re in real life frequently, but not, say, like this calendar year. I, I, that's, I've counted as recently. I would like to hear more about this. <laughs> yeah. Now, are, are the sloths in Costa Rica three-toed sloths or two-toed sloths? Why do I have to choose? Are they yeah, both? both? Yes, yes. That's and good. And and actually, just so everybody who's listening knows, one of the little-known facts about three-toed sloths and two-toed sloths is that they both actually have three toes. It's their hands <laughs> that have the 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 uh, or their upper the limbs that have the the uh, the 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 differentiator. But all of them have three toes in real life. And so and and are they they're different species, right? Yes, I mean they 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 uh, I am told that they can uh sometimes uh interbreed but unproductively. Uh -huh. Um so <laughs> you know, I mean what do I know? I I I I mean also what do I know about sloth breeding altogether? Are they are they friendly? Uh you know they're very slow, so it's really hard to, <laughs> to define them as unfriendly or friendly. Um, the babies so uh, love to snuggle in, in like pods and, and share bodily warmth, and they have these smiles, and if you feed them milk, they apparently are very happy. Um, the adults will love it if you give them an orchid to eat, because that's their favorite. Really? Um, oh, sloths uh, are just slow flower children. Yes. On the other hand, they're <laughs> they're they're not exactly um, warm and fuzzy. You know, I mean, they don't hug you. They they don't do like dogs and lick your face or cats and you know purr or anything like that. Which would sort of be my definition of friendly, in one way or another. Well, I feel like sorry, go ahead, I mean, my definition of friendly is just not openly hostile. So I feel like oh, they don't have the energy to be hostile. <laughs> yeah, I, I read somewhere that they uh, come down from the trees once a week uh, to uh, uh, to do their business. To poop. That's exactly um, right. And that that is the dangerous time for them 
because they are they're birds of prey and stuff can get them when they're on the ground. This is exactly right. Um, they they only come down to poop once a once a week or so, and uh, uh, they're I mean they're so slow that fungus grows in their fur. In their hair. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it like like it I happened to me once, you know, mushrooms, <laughs> yeah, growing in their hair. It's it's really quite strange and interesting. Um, they are uh, far and away <laughs> the most basket. interesting, uh, one of the more interesting animals we have in Costa Rica. And so this T-shirt is actually from a uh, a rescue facility nearby here that my wife and I support. Uh, Toucan Rescue Ranch, it's called, because it started off rescuing toucans, and if anybody wants to give them money, they're on, you know, they're great. There's another great place called the Sloth Institute. Um, but the Toucan Rescue Ranch takes in, like, if mama gets killed, baby sloth needs a home. Because if, if baby sloth doesn't get milk right away, baby sloth is dead as well. Um, so, uh, so the local animal care uh, uh, ministry, Minai, which is the Ministry Interior Nacional and, and, and Environmental, um, collects these strays. And there are lots of uh, NGOs uh, here in Costa Rica that accept this, them. You know, we've got toucans that have lost their beaks and, and uh, uh, birds that they, and they try and put them back out, right? They try and reacclimatize them. Uh, and, and so we have a release site over on the Guanacaste. Uh, side of of, uh, of the country, but not all of them can. Some of them are physically unable. Birds with a broken wing that can never fly. They're they're lifers. Um, animals that get too acclimatized to human uh, behavior can't be released. So they work really hard to you know feed them with puppets and stuff like that. Very cool. Yes. Well. Um... Let's bring in some audience members and see what people want to talk about. All righty. Okay. Um, I am going to start by inviting Mateo because this may take a while. Yeah, Mateo sometimes takes a while to show up when you invite him on screen. In the meantime, oh, there oh. he is. Hey, Mateo, that he was He showed up day. rather promptly, although he's got a hostage video look to him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> are, are, you, uh, are you being treated okay, Mateo? I, I, I'm safe for now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this looks pretty, pretty I want proof actually. of life, Mateo. Yeah. Hold, up, hold up today's newspaper. Uh do you he's, he's, he's of a generation that doesn't read understand newspapers. I, I can pull. I can pull up today's uh, today's newspaper on my phone if that works. <laughs> I trust you. Okay. All right, Mateo. Um, the floor oh. is yours. Jeez, uh, what did I ask? Oh, um, what is your favorite place? Like country, Lo <laughs> location geographical coordinates I think uh, it was purposefully vague but i was thinking a little I'll, I'll bit take it narrower a different way. than i'll take uh, it a different country way. a library okay. oh, oh nice that's a good library one. um you know uh, the the older 
the the library and the more ornate and the more people in it and the more books the better that's uh, a good one trinity trinity college library in dublin mm. uh the new york public library reading room yeah the library of congress reading room is library of congress reading room yes all good places uh if you could get me there um actually probably my favorite of all time would be the uh the library at my college, Haverford yeah. College, you know, spent many hours in there. How about you, GDF? I'm now just thinking about all the beautiful libraries. Um, can we come well, back Mateo to has a Mateo <laughs> has a cool one in, in New Haven, the Beinecke Rare Ooh. Books Library. Yeah, I'm about 80 feet below it right now. You're below it? I'm in the sub, sub, sub basement of uh, Yale Law School right now. Beinecke is very cool because it has these stone walls that are vaguely translucent. No. And so you can actually, when the light is bright outside, even though the walls are not windows, you it, it actually kind of glows. It's, it's, it's a very cool building. Mm, it's gorgeous. It's an, yeah, one of the best places around. Um, yeah, how about... Oh, what about favorite place? Um, well, I got to do that one a little differently because I, because um, I, you know, Paul changed the rules of the question. I didn't change them. He was mm -hmm. no, you really interpreted them, <laughs> and I, I'm going to interpret them differently, um, and say that the South Island of New Zealand is um, a. Mm location of astonishing beauty uh where i um uh where i biked around um as a mateo aged person on my own for a good long time and um uh would love to go back mateo i'm gonna ask That's you what's one. your favorite place oh is it I, I don't have an answer um wait i'll here, why don't you go and then I'll come up with one? Or was that your stalling <laughs> tactic? Yes, it was. <laughs> oh, jeez. Right. Um, um, all right. Well, I'm going to go a completely different direction. And I'm going to say um, my favorite place is going to be a little weird. I like to be in the car. Because I feel like I'm either going somewhere I'm really excited about, or I am going home. And either way is a good time for decompression. You're like, you're like my uh, my two dogs, mm -hmm. who are super excited to go out, and then super excited to come back. And yes. uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm tricking them every time. <laughs> you can't fake that kind of enthusiasm. It's no. just there. It's in deep inside and it's it's just it. <laughs> All right, Mateo, now you're on the block. Yeah, you, All right, you I got brought one. this subject up, man. All right. I'll say in anywhere in rural New England on a 70 degree fall day after oh. the leaves have changed. Excellent. Wow. All right. Bravo. Thank you, Mateo. Good, good answer. Excellent choice. Thanks. All right. And now we're going to bring up Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Daniel. Who it's good to see you again, man. Oh, Daniel. What? But not I, I, hear you. Can I hear you? Can you stay now? 
Oh, you muted yourself. I'm going to unmute you. Oh. Can you hear me now? We yeah. can. So I have, I have two less uplifting questions, both related. One is, what lessons do you guys think China is taking from Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And have you guys been surprised by any aspects of the Chinese response? Paul, you want to, do you have thoughts on this? Those are good questions. Um, they are. You know, I, with the caveat that I am by no means an international relations or foreign policy expert, um, I, I think China has to be surprised in two ways. First, uh, at Russia's poor performance. They probably, like the rest of the world, expected it to be a two-day two war. Uh, and second, by the relatively high degree of uh, Western response and engagement that, you know, has to, I mean, again, the Western response has been imperfect, and we can talk about that at length, but it hasn't been, um, uh, it has been a lot stronger than I think most observers would have anticipated a month ago. As for what, in terms of China's behavior, has surprised me, um, I guess I would probably say not much at all, which is to say that they're doing what they always do, which is watch and wait and watch and wait and play a very, very long game. Um, you know, they'll take from this some lessons. Uh, my guess is it probably has pushed back their internal sort of timetable for when to uh, bring the confrontation with Taiwan to a boil. Uh, you know, that might have yeah, might have been accelerated had Russia succeeded in taking over the Ukraine uh, without a whimper from the from the West. Now they have to reevaluate. So who knows? But those are spent. Oh, uh, the one thing the one thing that has surprised me about China's response is that we have seen almost no uh, collateral adventurism. I might have thought that they would take the opportunity of America being distracted, of the West being distracted in Europe to do something small even, you know, take a small island, you know, in the Sandukus or something like that. And we haven't even seen that. And that, that, that does speak to the fundamental caution of the Chinese regime, I think. I agree with all of that. Um, a few additional thoughts. First of all, um, this is very bad for the Chinese. And the reason is that uh, higher oil prices suppress economic growth worldwide, and the Chinese need economic growth worldwide to drive economic growth domestically. Uh, they actually have a growth problem the last few years, and their target for this year, which is around 5.5%, is substantially below their you know, what they've been, what works for them. Um, so they're actually expecting, you know, more bad economic times and they were counting on sort of robust growth in Europe and the West and the United States to drive demand for uh, Chinese manufacturing. High oil prices, high tension, really not good for that. Um, secondly, uh, 
you know, people wonder whether Putin is a rational actor or not. Nobody wonders if the Chinese are rational actors. They are. Um, and a rational actor looks at this and makes two very uh, clear, uh, very obvious conclusions. The first is that the Russian army is grossly overrated. Uh, that has implications for the Chinese in a number of areas, but not the least of which is that they have a very, very long border with Russia, and it's uh, it's historically uh, uh, not a it's a historically a tense border. It's it's uh, pretty peaceful now, um, but um, but it's something that they will notice. Uh, uh, the second is that um, the rest of the world, which they have been, as Paul says, assumed are uh, weak and disunited and um, uh, and incapable in contrast to Chinese unity and authoritarian muscularity, uh, responded extremely forcefully and have brought Russia uh, to its knees uh, economically with, you know, very quickly. Now, whether that actually prevents, you know, deters further misbehavior in Ukraine is a different question, but the Chinese will not fail to notice that when the rest of the world is intensely offended and gets together, A, it is capable of doing that, and secondly, the economic power of those countries cumulatively is immense. Um, and, you know, watching all of these companies, uh, which, you know, you and I say brands, companies, China says foreign investment, uh, just walk out of Russia on, on a day's notice. That is a very powerful message. And uh, so I, I think the Chinese uh, will take a lot of po two major positive messages from this. One is that they cannot completely offend the entire rest of the world. Uh, and the second is that Russia is, is maybe a reliable partner in some respects, but is not a effective partner when it ultimately comes to military prowess. And I'm going to bring up Richard. Hello, Richard. The floor Hello. is yours. Hi. I, well, I can do frivolous or I can do serious or I can do both. Both. I, I think you can both. do both. Okay. Well, as so long as it's not fun. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 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 well, this one. Okay. I'll do serious first. Um, so uh, how much of an effect do you think that the Russian occupation is going to, going to have on Trump and the GOP's cross GOP's prospects in the in this year and two years out or is it too early to tell um you know i just i i'm wondering really how much this might be affecting the people who are kind of uh fence sitters in, in the middle well i will just speak for myself on that um but my capacity to wish cast on this is so extreme that I don't trust my own judgment. Um, one would hope that 
the this would serve to discredit people who've been uh, too affectionate with Vladimir Putin over time. But one worries that it won't have that effect. So I don't, I don't really know what else to say about that. What, what do you guys think? I mean, it, there's been a practical effect where we've seen, I believe, even Tucker Carlson walked back some of his previous statements or pretends at least that the, he didn't say them um, and had a slight tonal shift. So uh, I think that very amateurly, you can kind of see that there's, if, if, if China is paying attention and is learning lessons about the power of really just a unified messaging and unified action across different states, I think domestically, it's probably not so impossible for our own like a party to look and be like okay so if we'd like to be elected and we see that this offends the sensibilities of the majority of people not only here but also globally then perhaps we don't want to be praising them i i suppose i'm slightly more optimistic you know i have long felt that ultimately ultimately the facts and reality catch up with the Republican Party and the incredible inflating Trump. I mean, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson says science is true whether you believe it or not. Um, and, and, and so is the reality of, of politics in some ways. Uh, you know, when you have Mike Pence saying there's no room in the Republican Party for Putin apologists, yes, okay, he's not naming Trump. But, you know, that's twice now in... In, in under two months, that he has consciously and purposely broken from Trump. Now, granted, he, he's probably not that important anymore in the party, but he's, he's not completely unimportant. He's more important than, you know, um, some. And, and that's a sign of something, I'm hoping. I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I Well, I was kind of hoping for for vastly superior certainty, but alas, okay. Um, so, uh, so the Why would you take certainty from people like us? You know, people like us, we were the people who were saying, there's no way conservatism will tolerate Donald Trump. I yeah, mean, yeah, on. yeah. Like, you know. Were we wrong or what, huh? I mean, yeah, I, 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 were, I was hoping that you would be writer than I was. Well, I was hoping that I would too, but, um, you know, I didn't think the Republican Party could could nominate him. I certainly didn't think he could win. Um, And by the way, I wrote pieces entertaining the possibility that he would win that were that look in retrospect quite good. I never believed it could happen for a second. And you know, so I just don't like the true, true story. Uh, predictions are hard, particularly about the future. True story about how unwilling I was to believe this. It was election day 2016. It was like 8 p.m. Eastern time when, I don't know, Pennsylvania goes for, for Trump or something like that. And my brother calls me and he says, he's going to win. And I said, no. He's not. There's no way he wins. This was at like 8 p.m. on November 6th, 2016. 
Yeah, nine thirty was a was a bad time. (laughs) (laughs) It was when it was when everybody realized it all at once. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, to to my frivolous question, are are you interested in hearing my story? How I went of how I went from disdaining Verdi to a uh, big Verdi fan. I am, but I'm, but principally, I'm interested in hearing how you could have ever disdained Verdi, a man of your <laughs> sense and refinement, and, um, and so I can only assume you had never listened to late Verdi, um, and you were, uh, you were, listened to a lot of stuff from his kind of umpapa early days, and. Um, and then suddenly were was exposed to Otello and Falstaff and Aida and uh, and the Requiem and realized that you were in the presence of greatness. Well, you know, I had actually been somewhat familiar with Aida early on and um, and La Traviata. So, you know, you got those two got those two sides of it. But um, and in fact, it was uh, Otello helped bring me in. Uh, reel me in, but I was about 26. So I was about 26 when I started. I decided I'm going to have to. I really should see if I can take Verdi seriously. And so I went and bought some recordings of, uh, bought a recording of Otello and a recording of Trovatore. And I, and I, you know, Otello was fine, but I decided I am going to, um, I'm, I'm going to listen to Il Trovatore until I'm going either I die or I actually come to like it. And, um, you know, a few weeks later, um, all, all I remember is waking up in a hospital bed, barely conscious and thinking, you know, Trovatore is really pretty neat. And <laughs> somehow I you know, came back to life like that. And what was the, uh, the, uh, Presumably, it wasn't Verdi that put you in the hospital. No, that, no, that, that, that's all part of this, this story. So, no, actually, I, I yeah, <laughs> no, it's the, I, you know, I saw, I heard my life, felt my life ebbing away, and then, <laughs> uh, and then I realized, hey, it's actually pretty good. So, all right, thank you, Richard. All right, and then I'm going to bring up Paula. Paula, are you green today? Yes, I'm in a different location, so I'm green. green. with envy. (laughs) Um, So I was wondering uh, what your thoughts on are, how we talk about Russian soldiers and then Russians themselves, because um, I've seen on Twitter a lot of people um, just explicitly um, in both. I I think that obviously the Russian soldiers rhetoric is extreme, which is like, die in hell disgusting i love to see dead bodies of these people and then on the russian people side it's more that they're complicit in what putin has done and i wanted to know your thoughts on how we talk about those things scott would be obviously i think raised kind of this point a little bit um on maybe we should be a little bit more sensitive about how we talk about those things but i wanted to hear your thoughts on that So in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the best thing that President Bush did, the very best thing that President Bush did, was he went to 
the big mosque in uh, northwest Washington, D.C., and he gave a talk, and the talk was, you know, it's not about Muslims, it's not about Islam, it's about bad people, these small group of bad people doing bad things. You know, unfortunately, I'm not sure it took as well as it should, uh, and there are a host of reasons, but it was really an important point, and I think the same point is true about Russia, right? I mean, it's, it's not about the Russian people, uh, most of whom don't even know what the heck is happening fully. It's not about the conscript soldiers, a lot of whom have no idea that what they were doing. I mean, it is about Putin. And if you want to expand that and make it about Putin's leadership group who are enabling him and supporting him, I, I, you know, I'd make it about them. But I, I, I'm sort of with you in the we shouldn't generalize to hate an entire nation or an, or an entire group of people. I completely agree with that. And I would go further than that, actually. Um, uh, the premise of the laws of war, like really the entire premise, at least as regards enemy soldiers, is that your fight is not with the individual soldiers, it's with the country. And that is why we protect POWs and afford them quite generous protections when they're captured. It's why it's unlawful to kill them. Uh, though if you kill them when they're fighting, that's actually an immunized act, right? So if Paul is on the opposite side of a war from GDF, and they shoot at each other, they both have what's called combat immunity for that, for those acts. Um, neither of them can be prosecuted um, because there's no, there's not an understanding that there's individual volition for the individual soldiers. They're instruments of their state. Now the, the wrinkle is that sometimes they're given orders to do things that are uh, unlawful under the laws of war. That is that they're war crimes. There have definitely been war crimes in Ukraine. And there, I think you can say individual Russian soldiers who've participated in war crimes, I think you're allowed to hate them. <laughs> I think you're, yeah. you're, you're allowed to say, you know, whoever knowingly and consciously bombed that maternity hospital today. I think you're allowed to have venom in your heart for that person the way you would for any murderous criminal. Um, but the Russian soldier who, as part of a regular, regular army, obeyed orders to go in and fight the Ukrainian army, your battle is not with that person. It, that person is an instrument of state policy. And uh, I think there's a lot to talk about, about, you know, um, why the Putin regime has um, the kind of support that it does. Um, there may be aspects of 
you know, modern great Russian nationalism uh, to talk about why it's, uh, but as a general matter, clash of civilizations, hating, hating cultures, hating language groups, hating, like it's, it's just a bad direction to go. And um, it's not good when you're talking about Arabs and Muslims, and it's not good when you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, Russians. It is very worth thinking about the ideology that Putin represents and why there are, you know, kids uh, giving Nazi salutes in 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 Russia, chanting, you know, slogans that really sound like they come out of the 40s. And I, I do think there's a cultural conversation to have there. But just, you know, Russian is a language, you know, and by the way, a lot of the Ukrainians on the other side of the speak the same language. So just just be careful on that stuff. Jonathan Rausch. You look like you're at the Brookings Institution and you have your awesome manual typewriter over your right shoulder. This is indeed the legendary Hermes 3000 on everyone's top 10 list of greatest manual typewriters ever. It's actually one of the greatest manufactured objects ever up there with baby cannons. <laughs> So you know the Hermes 3000 here. Of course I do. Give everyone a better view. I've been in your office many times. Of course I know the Hermes 3000. It looks like a 1956 Buick. So, Jonathan, I'm, I'm curious. I was so happy to get out of manuals because I wound up typing too fast and the keys all stuck. Are you so good that you have that problem? Well, I can't say I do all that much typing anymore, but when I do, I'm not that fast. And having grown up with typewriters, I kind of learned the touch that you need to have so the keys don't jam super often. But they do jam, and that's part of the fun. Strange I wouldn't definition. want it any other way. An <laughs> IBM Selectric 3, however, will not jam. That's because it uses a typing ball. Yeah, Correct. is that the unless, ball? Unless you're Dan Rather. <laughs> in which case, it will get you into serious trouble. That's no, true. I, I, I think the typing ball, and for those young'uns in the Greek chorus who've never seen a typewriter with a typing ball, those are awesome and proof of great human ingenuity. It's like up there with the harpsichord in terms of the cleverness of, of uh, uh, human uh, invention. All right. We have another question from Michael Nelson, who is not video optional. So I'm going to unmute him. Hello, Mike Nelson. Hello there. And hello, Paul. Hello. I thought I would ask a cybersecurity question in your honor. Huh, okay. In particular, what lessons should we learn from the way that the Russians have and have not been using cyber attacks as part of the invasion? 
before it started, a lot of people were predicting some kind of cyber Pearl Harbor or some really nasty takedown of the entire electric grid. I mean, there, there are lots of scenarios and they were all a lot worse than what we're actually seeing. So, so are the Russians holding back? Are the Ukrainians better defenders than we thought? Is the U.S. behind the scenes doing something? What, what's going on? Well, all of the above plus one more, I think, which is that in, in conflict situations, I think we are learning that offensive cyber operations are actually much more difficult to carry out than we might have suspe suspected. I think that, and, and I probably am as guilty of this as anybody, and so this has been a very interesting and useful learning experience for me personally, but I think that we all too readily equated the ease with which um, hackers and criminal groups could engage in disruptive, mischievous behavior, not mischievous is not quite the right word, like ransomware. And we mistakenly equated that with the ability to have uh, equally easy kinetic effects in the context of a of a real live shooting war and so i think that uh yeah erica langeren uh just wrote a really good piece in the in the was it the post of the times the other day with her husband sean about this she's up at army cyber and i think that that's that that's the lesson she's drew and i think that's right and you know i i was talking with a a friend in the u.s government um, DOD, who I won't name because I haven't been authorized to name them, um, but they told me uh, quite clearly that the longer they were in the job, the more they realized how hard it was to have broad, effective, large-scale uh, kinetic effects. So I think we're actually learning that the cyber domain is a little different from we, 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 we were thinking it was just equivalent, it was just another place to fight a war like land, sea, and air, and maybe it's not. And that's, a, I mean, uh, there are a lot more lessons learned. We're going to have, I, I, I'm, I can't wait for the Army Cyber Command's after-action study, or Naval War College does an after-action study two years from now, about everything we, that didn't happen in, in, in the Ukraine and why. I was at a meeting before this meeting where a Brookings expert who's may have been off the record, but his initials were Tom Wheeler <laughs> said that uh, uh, there may be indications that one reason Russia's not attacked uh, cyber more aggressively is that the Russians themselves are using the uh, Ukrainian cyber networks at the moment. They may attack them later, but at the moment they're finding them useful. Uh, I can't vouch for that one way or the other. That's interesting. I ha that's the first time I'd heard that. Um, I had heard other speculation that one of the reasons that at least early on uh, Putin didn't deploy the cyber was because he thought he was going to win the war kinetically in two years, so why waste a, you know, a whole bunch of good uh, cyber tools that have a shorter shelf life? Um, Two days or two No, he years? thought he was going to win it in two days. I'm sorry, did I say two years? Okay. But I also... Okay. Yeah, I was like, I hope... I, I also <laughs> think there's a, you know, like, the Ukrainians may be, they're, they're very mobile. They're um, 
fighting with automatic weapons and rocket launchers. These are not highly networked things. And it may be that they're, uh, that there's just a limited amount, you know, cyber is great for attacking highly networked entities. It's less great for, uh, for, uh, you know, technologies that are not, you know, that are, you know, not wired. If the internet, if it's not the internet of things, it's pretty hard to attack by means of cyber. Okay. So and never we, rule out incompetence, that's which true. the Russians have certainly displayed a great deal of. So I think we, that's a that's a fair point. Is is that just one of the lessons? Maybe that just as we all tended to overestimate the efficacy of the Russian kinetic military, we may have a greater than uh, appropriate sense of the competence of the Russian uh, uh, cyber folks. They're great at disinformation, but not much else. Well, they they're and, and they're well. very great and they're very good at exploitation. Yes. Um, but that's, you know, not a kinetic military function, right? It's a, it's a, it's a spying thing. Okay. Um, so we have a couple more questions and we're going to try and get through as many as we can. So um, I'm going to bring up Shailesh. Hi, Shailesh. We're going to try and keep it. I know this is a very interesting topic. But we're going to try and keep it a little abridged just for today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I figured out how to condense my question in in a couple of minutes. Although I must say, I think uh, like India as a topic probably deserves a, an hour here with yes. a true expert. And yes. I was very disturbed, like many people, to see India's abstention. But I kind of understand it. And I, I wanted to sort of pose a question to Ben and let, get him to sort of share his thoughts on it. So basically, India has had a long-standing relationship with Russia rooted in Cold War era. And that explains what is going on today. But the I feel like the equation is changing. Like both China and India have much higher GDP than Russia at this point. And if a future conflict sort of erupts between China and India, for instance, I don't know if Russia is a is what what role would Russia play in that, and like aren't they beholden to China at this point, and aren't India's interests more aligned with the West in in that situation? And there seems to be a lack of sort of awareness about this in India, at least among people I see. And I wanted sort of to get Ben's thoughts on it. And independent of all of this, I'm even more disappointed about sort of the reaction of ordinary people in India on social media, like the people I talk to. And they act as if they're, like everybody seems to be acting as if they are foreign policy bureaucrats without knowing all the details even. And it's not how you, re like, I mean, there's a tragedy happening here. And I wish there was a more of an acknowledgement of that. But that's a different topic, longer topic as well. But I'll stop here and let Ben comment. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I would love to, I, I want to have uh, my Brookings colleague, uh, Tanvi Maidan, on this. Uh, she's uh, very thoughtful on this subject. But look, my, my basic view is that every country has ideological pathologies that affect their foreign policy. In the United States, we certainly have a bunch of them. One of India's is a pathological commitment to 
avoiding alliances or avoiding formal international uh, alignments. And that dates back to Nehru and, um, and it actually caused a very pro-Russian tilt in the Cold War along with, um, along with Egypt, you know, the sort of creation of the non-aligned movement. Um, India has come a long way in getting over that, um, but it's still, and China has pushed it, I think, um, but it has, it, their residues of it are really still there. And the relationship with Russia is part, you know, that you see in that abstention is an example of that, that this is a country that, you know, looked at this crisis and said, yeah, but to, we would have to really align ourselves with the West in order to do that. And that was psychologically difficult for, you know, even a BJP India. Um, and so do I understand it? No. Um, but, you know, I don't, I, I do think countries operate within the constraints of their, of their ideological baggage and India's got some considerable ideological baggage on this stuff. Um, I, I, I was very surprised by it. Um, and I think it's a, you know, obviously something that the US diplomats and European diplomats need to work on over time. And I think it's something that Indian, India foreign policy thinkers need to work on over time. I'm not sure I have more to say about it than that, honestly. Um, Jonathan, Paul, have you guys thought about this at all? What I know about India, sadly, would fit in a thimble. So I know what I don't know. Okay. Ducks with pants. Without hair, though. Uh, yes. Um, I Ducks. Sometimes Good. the ducks show up with no pants, but with 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 pants, but without hair. I'll leave you in suspense <laughs> about part of that, but uh, <laughs> I did get it lopped <laughs> off yesterday, and the guy really went to town. But I, I have a performance next week, so I figured I should look spiffy. Um, I figured I would uh, use this opportunity to do a little market research and uh, ask some civilians, please, in the Greek chorus, uh, jump in and contribute. Uh, but I am curious um, what how people are discovering music these days. What prompts them to listen to new music, and uh, where they get where they find out about it. Jonathan, do you want to go first? So my love is old music, listening to classical music. Um, and it's hard to discover new things, but I try. I, I, the way I mostly do it is by trying to attend orchestral concerts and trying to make sure there's always at least one thing on the program I haven't heard before. So if it's the first half is, I don't know, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5 and the second half is Scheherazade, I'm unlikely to go. Whereas just for example, um, by coincidence, earlier today, I noticed that Benjamin Grosvenor uh, a young and extremely meteoric British pianist is playing at Strathmore on Saturday, and 
he's playing Beethoven's third piano concerto, but they're also doing a new piece that I have never heard of. So that excites me. And that's how I find new music by showing up and being exposed to it. The other day, uh, the NSO did um, Florence Price's Symphony Number no. Three. She's an African American composer from the '30s. Yes, we had a, we had a live um, performance it's a miracle. of a Florence Price organ piece uh, uh, by uh, by uh, uh, a British organist on the show. Uh, yes, on the show, impressive. Anna Lapwood. Wow. Well, how about that? Well, she's all the rage suddenly, but the NSO got there first, and it's a fun piece. So, so that's my answer. GDF, how do you discover new music? Um, I'm very fortunate, and I have a relative who is a musician with, I have pretty eclectic musical taste, as does he, and so he makes recommendations, and I usually like them. Or I go combing through Spotify, and we'll find something that, not a lot of people have listened to or a ton of people listen to it really depends on my mood um how about you paul ben well I, 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 unlike jonathan i'm a jazz aficionado though i love classical music as well and the way that i find new stuff is most years though not for the last two sadly my wife and i go to the new orleans jazz festival and um and we don't listen to the I mean, we sometimes listen to the people we know, of course, because, you know, you know, if the Neville brothers are playing, who cannot listen to them? But, uh, but what we try and do is wander to the smaller stages and listen, you know, to people playing earlier in the day and finding new people that way that we kind of can groove on. Uh, we found a, 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 a jazz group from Belgium that, uh, that did Django Reinhardt type stuff called the Wasso Gypso, Wasso Gypsy Belgian Jazz Band, uh, and and yeah, you know, and I just fell in love with them. So I got all three of their albums, and then they broke up, and you'll never hear from them again. But uh, if you go, if you can download them. Wasso Gypsy Belgian Jazz Band. I think, I think I'm saying it right. So. I don't know the answer to this question. I there's a certain amount of recommendations. There's a certain amount of um, strategic. I like this piece by this person, so I look for the stuff adjacent to it. There's a certain amount of serendipity. You look up you, you you're watching a show or watching a movie and you see a you you like the score and so you stay for the credits to see who wrote it and then look that person up um and then there's a certain amount of just accidental exposure um so i i don't have an especially strategic uh, magic answer to that question. Okay, we have two minutes, but we're going to try and get through these last two questions very quickly. Ah. Uh, <laughs> um, Oblio, the floor is yours. So I, I'm a news junkie and following all the Russian stuff, but I was wondering if anybody caught that they found the shipwreck of Shackleton's Endurance. And what a great piece of news that was in all the grim stuff. It, the, the video was just awesome. 
the video is awesome the boat is beautiful the wheel uh looks like it's something out of a movie set it's great one of the greatest um, stories of all time yeah i don't know what to say about it but it, i i'm totally with oblio 23 the pro i'm just generally pro discovery of old shipwrecks as a i think they're <laughs> they're almost always good to just you know discover and send a submersible around to film like it's almost never turns out to be a bad idea i like the caveat of almost never <laughs> Well, I, there is one exception, which is I had to write the Washington Post's editorials for a number of years about legal disputes about salvage of these boats. Oh, yeah. That makes you regret sometimes because those disputes are awful. Okay. Itamar. You get the last question, Itamar. Okay. Uh, so do you recommend alcoholism as a career advancement strategy? You did say moderate in your question. <laughs> moderate alcoholism. Moderate alcoholism as a career advancement strategy. Let's just go around on that. Jonathan. Jonathan's mute. Yeah, you got to unmute yourself. I, I got you, Jonathan. Oh. Um, oh. So... You know, there's a saying that I don't adhere to it. Uh, write drunk, edit sober. Uh, but but I do both sober, and it's a high wire act. Um, I think it would be easier if I drank more, but but I don't. I don't really like the taste of alcohol. I have the, a natural aversion gene. Paul, I don't think I could get through the day without a glass of wine. Um, most days. Uh, I, I find, I find it in a small, in small amounts, it, it doesn't hurt. And sometimes it actually helps the creativity. GDF. I think being able to hold your alcohol is very important for career advancement. There are many, many stories of a Christmas party gone awry and someone not having a job the next day. So knowing your limit is important. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to say I am not against moderate consumption of alcohol and I am pro career advancement. I think the ambition to use one to facilitate the other is probably misplaced. Just keep them separate. All right, it is 6.02 p.m. We are relatively on time. <laughs> Thanks for the Twitter invite, Ben. It was great to join you guys. Today. You know, it's great to have you both. You're both great Americans, even if you're, Paul, an American expatriate. Um, Still American. Uh, American. We're going to be back Friday with Mike Pesca. Uh, who, by the way, if you guys have not listened to his uh, rumination on the gist yesterday about the um, the New York Times op-ed by the UVA kid, it may be the smartest thing written about cancel culture, not by Jonathan Rausch. Um, uh, it's uh, a particularly good monologue and very thoughtful. 
Uh, and we will surely be talking about that 48 hour, 46 hours and 57 minutes from now. And until then, GDF. We don't have fun anymore, but we get to keep all the stuff that we'd like to keep. <laughs> I hope you all have a wonderful week. Meanwhile, Paul's going to lie. Oh, yeah, the sun's <laughs> coming.